What options do we have? شو البديل؟ طب what's the alternative? This is the Saudi Podcast, your guide to Lebanon's alternative political parties and the upcoming elections. Hi everyone, I'm Tariq Khalil and today I'm joined by my co-host Tamara Rasamni. Today we have Nay from Lihaqi with us, Nay Rai. And let's get started. So welcome Nay, thanks for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you doing today? Um, okay. <laughs> do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? You know, what you do, how you got started with Lihaqi? Mm. So I am a researcher at the Lebanese American University. I work with the Arab Institute for Women. So my project looks at forms of anti-feminist backlash against women in politics and women in you know the, the, the public realm, basically. And I also teach at LAU. I teach oral communication and a course called Gender and Media. So basically how, you know, gender and media basically <laughs> intersect. So, yeah. How, how did I get started with the hockey? I think it was a very, like, it's a lot like hockey. It was a very organic encounter in a sense that I, hockey was not my first political endeavor, uh, nor was it my first encounter with, you know, politics and protest and that sort of thing. I was previously very active with a, a traditional political party, which I left. <laughs> I see raised eyebrows. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not, like, I, it's not, It's not like I'm ashamed of it. It's a more of a, um, like a, a learning milestone. But I was in that party because my mother was. And so this was sort of like a very emblematic of the Lebanese political system. So it, it's, it came down to me through family lines. And I got in very early. I was 17 and I left it at 21. I'm now 35, so in case you're wondering. So it wasn't my first encounter, as I said. And after I left the, the party at 21, I got involved in many projects. And I discovered my feminism. Like, I discovered, the you know, my feminist leanings. And I was active for a very long time with a lot of civil groups and a lot of uh, feminist networks in, in Lebanon. And then I was very active evidently in the 2015 garbage protests. I wasn't in the country in 2011, but I was very much involved from wherever I was. So I was involved in the protests in 2015. And after that, you know, I kept on following up really closely with all the developments that were happening. Like any other political activist, basically, or politically active individual in this country, you sort of cannot operate outside like outside what's happening. You cannot have opinions that are there regardless of what's going on. Even as a feminist, like I was, as the years went by, I got even more convinced that, you know, there is nothing that we can demand as women that is not very intimately tied to the overall, you know, political, social and economic system that is, you know, that is oppressing everybody in varying degrees, of course. When the 17th of October happened, I was naturally in my, you know, natural habitat, which is the street. Um, and I, along with many other comrades and friends that I know from like different uh, social circles and who also happened to be with Lihaqi. And so Lihaqi was always there, like this entity that came about with the Kuluna Watani experience in 2018. And most of my friends were there. Like most of my friends were already members of the hockey, were founding members of the hockey. But I was very reluctant at first because I thought, you know, this is just another political project that's going to fail, evidently, and that is going to be male-centered and male-dominated and, you know, like the same old, same old, like, and I really sort of, I'm too old for this shit sort of things. But then, <laughs> but then as I had a closer look at what they were doing, especially throughout the, the the protests of the October 17th uprising, I realized that, well, they really are different and they really are very organic and grassroots and like there is no, there is no decision that comes top down, you know, in a hierarchy that 
you know, parachuted on them for them to execute. Mm. After a few discussions, uh, persuasion, etc., I decided to join. This was a very long answer to a very straightforward question. Yeah, we like some background. In terms of the the hockey being super grassroots and all these decisions being made. Um, like from the bottom up, let's mm-hmm. say. I'm not sure if I can say this. I'm talking about Lihaki in a positive way. But I was involved with Lihaki. Okay. And I was like in their circle a bit as a volunteer and stuff during the protests. Mm-hmm. And what was nice about that experience is that every time they would want to make any decision, everybody has to vote. Mm-hmm. And that's how the decision is made. And usually with most parties, it's like a... Mm. You know, centralized, somebody makes a decision and then everybody has to kind of follow that decision. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a from the start, uh, even among the Kuluna Watani 2018 lists, I think Lihaki, I was not with them at the time, but from what I know and from, you know, the narratives and the, the, the stories that came out of this experience, Lihaki campaign in Shufalei in Mount Lebanon district, the fourth district of Mount Lebanon, privileged uh, participatory methods and a very, very horizontal structure. And I think, you know, one of the learnings of that endeavor at the time was that the more grassroots we are, the more door-to-door, neighborhood-to-neighborhood kind of people we are, the more likely we are that, you know, people would trust us. Mm -hmm. People would see a face and then would, regardless of how many people have great platforms and secular, you know, secular rhetorics and, you know, the, the, the best kind of speech when it comes to social justice that they see on TV, it's totally different when, you know, the exact same platform comes about with a human face and talks to you and tells you, like, this is what we're going to do. You know, this is how we want to recreate politics. And this is, you know, the hockey understands that this is not the norm and this is not something that people know. And we, we know that political culture in this country is totally different. And what we are coming with is like a radical insight when it comes to politics, when it comes to like talking to people and working with them. But at the same time, we've seen how this works. We know that it's incremental. It's not going to happen, you know, overnight. And it's not going to work for the first 78 times. But, <laughs> but at, you know, eventually this is something that people want because it gives them, it gives them back their political agency of which they've been robbed for so many like for so many years so i want to ask a bit about lihaki specifically <clears throat> so uh, you come from a feminist background as you kind of explained and that's also one of the primary core values of the organization mm-hmm. as well can you tell us a bit more about like if somebody doesn't know hasn't heard about lihaki before what what are the main you know core principles they abide by and we also mentioned it's it's a horizontal structure mm-hmm. Uh, grassroots. So yeah. basically, it's a, a grassroots social and political movement that, that came out of the experience of uh, a group of activists in 2018 during the parliamentary elections in uh, Shufalei. So it aims to do two things. Okay. So first, to reinvent sort of the, the, the politics of the everyday and the political culture and the political practice of, you know, in the country. And second, it's it's pushing for a new social contract that's operating around a secular, decentralized state that works for social justice. And of course, when we talk about social justice, we are talking about an entire set of intersecting power systems that put people, you know, at a disadvantage, chronically at a disadvantage. The mantra of the group is power to the people. Everything that we do, the practices, the values, the, the charter that we have is all geared towards doing what's right for the people. So biased towards the people. And so everything that we came up with when it comes to our political charter, to our economic charter, is all centered around, you know, what is the structure that would suit people the most? It's definitely not the centralized sectarian classist state that we're living under. The antithesis of this would be uh, a secular, decentralized state that demands social justice and that implements it and that tries to, you know, that tries to probe people 
to push them towards models that work for them, be it a more democratic economy, or be it a secular state, or be it any entity, basically, uh, where they can push for the rights and where they can thrive and where they can have their basic needs, such as food, medication, like work, jobs, housing, social security available for everyone. So you were talking a little bit about how Lihaki basically got started as an opposition movement during mm -hmm. the 2018 elections. Can you tell us a little bit more about yours and Lihaki's in general experience during those elections? As in going door to door, talking to people mm -hmm. or the day of elections or even after? I can. Physically, when we talk informally in Lihaki circles about the 2018 elections and about how the idea started, something very interesting stands out. And I think the individual who told us this does not know that it's that it you know that it stuck with me that much. They say that they when they first started there was this WhatsApp group that they called Love, Al Hub, and so and everything that related to the elections started there, like and was deliberated there on this group. And to me, it, it stuck with me because it's very representative of what we do. The fact that this is an entity that's so fed up with the top-down, hierarchical, discriminatory, exclusionary practices that are being, you know, shoved into their lives by the state and by the powers that be and by the elites that use fear-mongering to keep people apart, basically, that they decided that the group that is going to, you know, lead this work, this oppositional work, would be called love. They never elaborated on that, but to me, it feels like there was this certainty that if politics does not grow out of love for the community and for the people and for the overall good of these people and this community, then there's no use, like, it's futile, like, don't, don't even bother. And I think this is what drove them all the way, like, through these elections, because, like, one very major learning of this period was that the more, as I said, basically, the more grassroots we are, the more aligned with the people, the more people know us and see our faces and hear our voices, and the more we tell them, like personally, what we stand for, the more trusting they will be of us. So there were a lot of platforms that, that held maybe similar discourses, similar rhetorics to that of Lihaki at the time, but Lihaki got much more votes because people associated the discourse with faces that they know very well. There were some candidates from that list in Shufalei that went to over 100 villages in the district. The person personally <laughs> visited these districts, these, these, these villages. Another learning was that this reputation of, oh, you cannot go into sectarian leaders' strongholds and fight them, uh, because you will be basically killed or you will be, you know, you will be exposed to a lot of vi to extreme violence or to brutality is really not that true. Because, of course, I mean, there, there are thugs, there are instances where people were attacked by thugs, especially as we've seen in the past two years. But society at large, even those people who are in the circle of this leader or in the circle of this, the bia of the any particular party, is not necessarily this group of thuggish, brutal gangsters. It's not true. And so it is very possible and it's very, and it's very accessible for opposition groups to basically field a battle in the stronghold of a sectarian pattern, basically. And on the day of the elections, uh, as far as I remember, we, we heard that and we learned that there was a lot of uh, tampering with the votes. Mm. And so there was, uh, when, when they were counting the votes, you know, at the end, at the very, very end of the day, the people in charge basically dismissed them for a break for three hours because it was 6 a.m. When they came back at nine, they found that, you know, they were at a certain vote count. They were at a 11,500 something vote count. Yeah. They came back at 9 a.m. They were at 9,000. Um, <laughs> the the threshold was, I think, 10,000. So basically, um, yeah, they were they, they lost short of 3,000 votes. 
So I'm glad you actually mentioned that because there's this report that I wanted to read to you, which you just exactly said it, explaining how one, Lihaki had the largest number of delegates in the Shufale region, mm-hmm. about 350 they did, yes. delegates. And like, as in people... And over a thousand volunteers state. at a peak. Okay. So. And that the threshold was 13,126, but they... They had counted at 11,500 with many more left. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. the assumption is they would have gotten those, I think it was two seats. They w- it was almost certain that they would get this one seat. Yeah. But they didn't, so. And the judge who, dismissed who them ruled for a break, dismissed yeah. them for a break is was, like, said to be politically tied. So, mm-hmm. you know, there mm-hmm. are those. But that actually, so I'm glad you mentioned learning curves and, and that kind of stuff because a lot of the conversations we've been having now with groups is we need people on the ground at polling stations mm-hmm. which I understand obviously the need for it to, to be able to count and actually this is why we have this information is because people were there but how are you preparing for let's say if another judge dismisses you for a break or something you know, this is something that we and I think everybody's expecting it <laughs> because essentially parliamentary elections are the battlefield or the playground of you know the regime And it's one of its tools. And it's basically their backyard. <laughs> okay. So everybody's expecting this, you know, this kind of breach to happen. Yeah. I don't have a blanket answer to that. And because it's in Lehaki's literature and in Lehaki's mindset that this election is not a magic wand. This is not, of course, people take it seriously. Although not everybody thinks that it's going to, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tool for change. But because people take it seriously, we are involved, we are engaged seriously in it. Mm-hmm. But we do not think that this is going to like make or break anything, really. It's just um, another milestone, another occasion for us to, to, to add to the incremental changes, to add to the, to the incremental change in, in rhetoric and in the shift in paradigm that people are going through. They have been going through for the past decade. And so, no, I do not have an answer to how, like, unfortunately, we will not have any weapons, like, long story short. We expect it to happen. Really, what we're counting on is people's involvement in the process. And, you know, the fact that people will have an option and will have another alternative to what's going on. The fact that we will use and abuse the platforms for us to to push for a new social contract, because clearly the one that we have now is obsolete and is is disintegrating to push for more solidarity networks more solidarity grassroots solidarity projects among people to help themselves sustain in light of the regime's indifference and the regime's total complicity with what's going on on the economic level basically i don't know what to tell you <laughs> basically yeah uh no i totally agree i mean um I don't know, we can't really control some of these things. So I would say the only thing that maybe we can do is making sure that we have a lot of volunteers and delegates. Yeah. Like, I don't mean to sound like we're resigning to the powers that be like, oh, we don't know what's going to happen. Like, we know that this is going to happen. But we know that also that this is the nature of the regime. Yeah. We know that now they're at a point where... So elections this time around is different in a sense that this is the peak of disintegration that this regime is at. And we've never had elections with these factors. Mm. But also, this is a double-edged sword because the soaring poverty levels are, you know, you, you, like you, can't, you can't guarantee the voting behavior with, this, with these levels. And, but at the same time, they are also going bankrupt. <laughs> mm-hmm. Eventually, like gradually, incrementally, not totally, but, you know, they too are at a very weak place in a very weak place of course the the regime is not over yet the the grip over people is still there but i think there are margins um you know there are margins to maneuver this if the regime sees that there is a chance that they will be failing they will not hold elections and a they're very vicious and they employ a lot of smart tactics but when you really like When you dissect what they're trying to say, when you dissect their, their rhetoric and their discourse, you realize you know, it's pure fear-mongering. Mm-hmm. Pure. There's nothing else. And when you try to talk to people beyond these lines, secular groups, groups that are crossing the divides of all sorts, 
they they realize you know they don't match the resources that the state has mm-hmm. they don't match the resources that these parties have uh, the makanet the machines and the gatekeepers the fatih you know these are people these are linchpins of a uh, of success in particular in particular uh, uh, districts that we don't have because we are full time employ employees shimahal hala like at best people are entrepreneurs or freelancers but also they have limited capacity in terms of what they can do the amount of money that they can spend so we're not as organized in the sense that not because we are disorganized but because they are organized in a there's the historical perspective like there's a historical background that they have like 40 years of uh, um, you know of of being in power under the patronage of like everybody and with a lot of money coming in to keep things you know to keep a particular status quo and with all the you know with them being parasites on state resources أكيد, you know, they will have more resources than we do since we're already talking about elections if we want to talk about what the ideal elections in Lebanon would look like for 2022 would that be a list, multiple lists? What's Lihaki stand on that, and how are you guys um, going about this? Multiple lists? You mean multiple opposition lists? Yeah. Oh. Well, I think, to, like, if I want to start this conversation or this answer, we need to first uh, debunk particular myths. There is no such thing as one oppositional front. There's no such thing. Particularly when the discussion starts involving traditional parties like Kataib, okay, or like Harakat al-Istiqlal, whatever, in the, in the north, Michel Mawad's group. These are not the opposition that we are. These are not positioned where we are. Um, these are traditional um, sectarian separatist groups that were okay with everything and that and whose leaders inherited their positions from their fa- from their parents mm-hmm. um and who were integral parts of the system that led us to where we are today so these are not part of the game okay they're forcing us to accept them as part of the game but they're not so that's one currently the 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 matrix involves parties and groups that are for this kind of narrative. Like, oh, the biggest problem of the country is Hezbollah. Let's all group together against them. This is not the problem. Hezbollah is the strongest entity in the system and is actually the protector of the system. But everybody else sat with Hezbollah and with each other to, you know, get a piece of the cake to be part of corrupt bids. They all, you know, nepotism is all around. They all have cronies. They all practice the same. It's actually the same practices. In 2018, that's a a parenthesis, okay? So there's this study that looked at, that kind of reviewed what the challenges of the opposition in 2018 were. One of the interviewees in the article said that some gatekeepers employed by one of the political parties actually prevented a voter from getting their medications, basically. And when asked who does that, the person who was anonymous for the interview said, everybody, every single party does that. Okay? And when they need to fight, like really to like have this dirty fight for a seat, they will all do it. So, Kulun does not come from a vacuum. It does not come from outer space. It comes from you know, daily practices that we've been seeing for the past four decades. There's this narrative in the the opposition that says we all need to be with the lesser evil to, you know, topple the bigger evil, which is in this case Hezbollah. And that's not true. That's going to take us to more problems. That's going to lead us to bigger fights later on. So the awal myth, and wanting to unify everybody is also like a, a political faux pas because people have different platforms. Some people are on the left of people, some people are on the right, some people are in the center. And to us, to Lihaqi, I think one of the, the fundamental issues is the group's take on 
the banks and on the banking system, mm. not on the banks per se. Some people are against banks today because they're holding their money hostage. But they're not, they don't have any problem with the free market. They don't have any problem with the actual banking sector the way it is. They don't have any problem with, you know, Salem's three decade old <laughs> practices. They just need their money out. And it's their right. But they're not, this is different. It's not, it's not, it doesn't mean that whoever is against the banks today is opposition. Or whoever is against Hezbollah today is opposition. I think the the matrix is very wide and is very uh, nuanced, and which is which is why we should not panic about needing to be one front. We cannot be one front with the Kitayib. Others think they can, so well by all means they can. That's <laughs> that's to start with. What if you split the what? Yeah, guys, you know what is the point of you being an opposition party? If you're gonna act like them, is about kontkazbo, about kont, يعني, about kont لعبو below the belt. لشو الهدف يعني يعني أنتو عن جد يعني ما بعرف إذا this transpired من interviews. أنا كل مرة بحكي عن حقي بجرب فسر إنه نحنا عن جد نحنا عم نعمل شيء جديد بالممارسة. In terms of in the political and the practice, you know, we're very transparent. We're very straightforward. We do not play these dirty games. Every, literally everybody around us does. حقهم يكونوا بالسياسة خلص موضعوا إنه إنه الكتايب روحوا شيلوا مساحن القوات أنا شو خصنا فيكم كوادركم كوعدكم ما رح تقبلني وكوعدي ما بتقبلكم شو بكون شو خدوا من عند الكتايب من القوات تخدوا من عندي ليه تنت تبع النظام اللبناني هو الفري ماركت وهو السفر تبع الاقتصاد واقتصاد حر هيدا بالدستور والكتايب اللبنانيه هن فاونديشن بهذا النظام طب انت يعني ولهلا ما هيك مش لانه كلكم يعني كلكم بس لانه هاي الشيء لما هيدا الشيء تصيروا ضده تعوا دعسوا على رقبتي خلص هالقد هي وين يو اجري تو ريكونسيدر ذا فاونديشنز اوف ذا لبنانيز ايكونومي يور ويلكم لما بتقعد على جنب وبتقول انا ما خصني وما راح اي ويل نوت فيل اني كانديدت وخلي الشباب عن جد يستلموا لما بتقول انه حزب الكتايب رح يروح لعند حدا غير بيت الجميل تعد عاص على رقبتي هالقد هالقد انه كمان يو كنوت بيك اند شوز يعني هي منا على كارت القصه يو كنوت بيك اند شوز شو بدك انه انا بدي انه اكون مع الشباب لان انا شاب بس ات ذا سيم تايم اي ام نوت ويلينج تو ريكونسيدر ماي بريفيليجز وين ات كومز تو مي انهيرتينج ماي Inheriting an entire party. When you're not willing to really critically and profoundly engage with the mistakes of your past and with the wrongdoings and the shortcomings of what your political party did over the past four decades in this country, then you're not willing to let go of any of your privileges. You're not willing to take a step back and reconsider what, you, what you've done. When you're not willing to reconsider your foundational and very deeply embedded notions of the free economy and how it's a necessity for Lebanon and how the banking sector is great and is the, you know, the, the, the lung of the country, and there's something f- fundamentally wrong with your positioning right now as a position. Mm-hmm. A position to what? To Hezbollah? A lot of the people who are with the banks right now are against Hezbollah. How did I benefit? So how are you going about preparing for elections? Yeah. Do you have other parties that you will be on a list with? Are you in talks with other people? Yes. We know Kateib are excluded. Yes, actually, we our plan for the elections right now is a lot similar to, you know, how our organization is functions. So basically, it's decentralized, uh, it's grassroots. So in different <coughs> different districts, we're allied with different people, much different people uh, radically, but we're not. There isn't any stance that says Lihaki will be with XYZ parties across the board. Because also this kind of centralized hierarchical way of doing things is totally not the way we do things. Which is why we don't have a national unified front that is leading the way. Mm-hmm. Our grassroots are actually basically deciding, take, making decisions over, you know, who are we going to be with? What kind of discourse are we going to have? What's, what's sure, what's certain is that we have one narrative that crosses all lines, that crosses all districts. Basically, two things. 
to push for a new social contract that is based on secularism, decentralization, and um, and social social justice. And the second is basically working on building self-sustaining systems and you know sustenance systems for people right now, be it on the economic level or the social level. And that also means building solidarity networks, trying to invest in or push direct investments in the agricultural fields, in the clean energy fields, all that. And basically, that's where our uh, slogan comes from. So basically, food, medication, housing, security, jobs for everyone. So basically, we're trying to work on that level. It is definitely very long term and it's very hard, but that's like occasions like the elections and instances like parliamentary national elections should not sway us from you know the actual needs of the people because this is our mantra and this is the our raison d'etre this is why we're this is why we exist so so that's one on one level and on the other it's the 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 pushing for the new social contract because what we're seeing right now is the result of a political economic social financial monetary disintegration of the system and that's the entity that's paying the price is the people is the most vulnerable of the people while the the two percent the elites and the cronies uh, in the banks and in the judiciary and in the military are all good with their families safely you know in other countries with other passports etc so so there's a lot of blame on people like not not being active or people being lazy where is everybody and the, the lira is day and they blew us up and where's everyone and everyone deserves this because they're not doing anything but people they miss uh, a crucial point we have not seen any political model in the past 20 years that is actually worth observing or worth going after We've seen a bunch of warlords turned politicians who are sectarian leaders who buy people's allegiance and loyalty in return for basic amenities, like basic rights. And so that's what we've seen. And they call themselves political leaders with political parties, political following. And that's not the case. (laughs) And at the same time, People in the city, in Beirut specifically, and everywhere actually, are running after their basic needs. They're running after jobs. They're running after, you know, resources to pay the bills of hospitals for their parents, for their siblings, for their children. They're running after money to put their children in schools. They're running after the basics with rents soaring in the city, with jobs really, really scarce. It's a mess. And it's a man-made mess. And it's their mess. And so political activism is not a given for people. It's not like, oh, you know, the rent is very high. I need to see other buildings, other people in the city to see if the rent is also high so we can mobilize. That's not how people think. Because that's not the prevalent culture. The prevalent culture is, you know, who is the muftah of X party in this neighborhood? So I can go talk to them and tell them to, like, give the landlord the good beating you know, lower the rent. It's not because people are evil, but it's because they don't have any other recourse. There are no other options. The political parties in power today are the same political parties that waged the the 15-year war that we always talk about in Lebanon. And they're, they're the same people who are leashing on the state resources and the state assets. And they're renting out these basic, the services that should have been public services to people in return for a vote or in return of a certain type of loyalty. Yes, people are not to be blamed because what is, where is, like, where is the opposition? Like, where is the real political platform that's gonna lure them in? That they also have structural weaknesses because they are also busy trying to like build something out of the rumbles, basically. There's this basic mantra that we have that is which is power to people, and that we've created tangential mantras <laughs> off of like politics for the people. And what we really mean by this is politics that is inspired by, you know, people's aspirations and people's needs. Because unlike what many people think and what many, you know, people around in the opposition ambiance, so to speak, unlike what they think that people, oh, they're only after, you know, they need to eat, they need to, to make ends meet, they need to just, you know, put their kids in school. 
they they also need much more than this especially people in beirut uh where i live and what you know the the city i know most people are in need of a of a, of a new horizon where they can have you know novel political aspirations and imaginaries uh, and that's not something we talk about enough dude we want to be able to dream <clears throat> like who still has dreams in lebanon really you know i mean <laughs> You can still find these people, but these are very, <laughs> I hate the, as much as I hate the word, but they're very resilient in a sense that they're, you know, they're used to get, you know, beaten up and then on their feet again and again and again. And I think it's simply because some people have no other choices. Like they cannot, they cannot afford to go anywhere. And some of the people do not want to go anywhere and want to build something here. And I think this is the, it really comes down to this battle, whether you can, as an opposition group, to restore this hope and to restore this will to stay. I think the most toxic and vicious and hurtful thing that they've done to us is that they left nothing for us to hold on to. And so many, many people I know who are my comrades, basically, are leaving because not only because they cannot find any opportunity for them to stay, but also because they sort of lost hope is really like an understatement. They're like, there is nothing here for me to stay. The fact that people, some people are still here and some people are insisting to work and some people are insisting to like make politics out of this, this mess and out of this humongous injustice is challenging enough for them and is reason enough for me at least to to stay and to try and make something out of what we have because we really had something and people do have dreams about this country and so yeah it's not it's not fair and it's not right for us to just you know خلاص ما بقى في شيء so let's just leave um i i hate that narrative i mean there's a lot of people leaving lebanon and all that stuff but there's like this ongoing narrative as well that who's staying in the country only old people and pe- uneducated people or something like that and i feel like that really hecky بعرف كيف بيقولوا ان انجلش بس انه بتكسر شوي باللي عم يبقى هون انه خيي نحن هون وانت هون انه ليك بس اتس ماتش ليس اتس ماتش ليس يو كان اتس ا ديسيجن اند اي اي ثينك اتس ا ديسيجن ذات بيبل تيك or education and come back. It is definitely a decision. But at the same time, there are people who cannot afford to leave, as I said, who would really like to, and who are not staying because they want to defy anything, but they can't, they just don't have a way out. And also, I think it's for them that we need to think and really think strategically and really try to work because they they don't have any other option. This is what they have. This is their reality. And it will remain the reality for a very long time. So we might as well, you know, start thinking of, of them, uh, of people who are less privileged than those of us who can't just say, okay, like, I'm going to go for my PhD now. Bye. And stay whatever they go. Mm-hmm. Um, or, oh, I got a job in X, you know, X city or X country and I'm going to go. The real heartbreak is this people who... The people who are staying because they have no other way, like they have no way out, they have no other place to be, and they have no means to be out. They are the frontliners, and they are the first, the directly hit. They are the most vulnerable. These are the nests. It's us, but it's also those of us who don't have any other option but to stay. Um, yeah. I need to get in technicals. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, kid. I don't know where we left off on the coalition talk, hey, but um, um, it's okay. But I mean, we talked about the platform. Are there any names? Are there any names you have for candidates or for groups? Well, I meant for candidates, but for groups, you said it de- depends on different areas. Yeah, but I mean across across the board, there are certain political groups that are running in different districts across the country. Like Lana, for instance, like Marsad al Shabil, Fasid. And these are two strategic allies of ours. But there are also smaller groups and less you know, less formally structured groups in different places in the north, like Shamaluna, in the Bukah, in uh Shufale, 
and in uh, Babda and in Beirut also. So Lana and Mars had across the board and the smaller groups with whom we've been fighting the fight for the past two years, with whom we've been sharing the the street and the and the protest and the and the detention center and the police station. <laughs> for example, in Beirut, like Lubnan Yantafid uh, is a is a very organic grassroots group that we're forging alliances with also as I said, Marsad and Lana and Mada as well, with their new campaign right now, which is Beirut Tukan. So so, okay, I'm glad you mentioned the different areas because I know when, honestly, when I first had heard of Lihaki, maybe like three, four years ago, I kind of had an association of it, of like a shuf, yeah. druze. I yeah, know, I know secular, but mostly, like most of the people who I know who are yeah. in it are druze. Yeah. So like, what's your <laughs> demographics? I mean, this is, to start with, there isn't anything to shy away from in the fact that we start like Lihaki, you know, before establishing itself as a political entity, started from a campaign in Shuf Alay. And most of the seats on this list were Druze seats. And yes, our candidates, now we had, we, we, we filled the entire list, like we had candidates for all the, for all the seats, but um, the, the people who stood out at the time were uh, Durziman. This is reality. Mm. And I think acknowledging the fact that Saying that we're secular does not mean that we're erasing, that we're deleting everything that comes with the package, like with the background of a certain individual. Yes, the electoral law is proportional on paper, but it's a a very sectarian, majoritarian kind of law whereby you cannot operate, like you cannot field candidates if you're not very aware and very cognizant of, you know, what sect how many seats do we have for this sect and how many? So these details, the, the nitty gritty details of like going technical in elections in Lebanon means that you need to count your people in function of their sects. But that doesn't mean that Lihaka is not present almost everywhere else. I'm just saying this because we need to not hide from the fact that, yes, it started in the, the stronghold of the, the, the socialist party in the reign of Walid blood, and it was a major challenge for his rule. But that doesn't mean that we're not doing the same in different other places. It took more time to build something in Beirut, for instance, or in the Bukah, or in Balbak. We have a, a, a list in the works in Balbak right now, because we did not start out there. And because we're very organic and we're very grassroots, the presence of, a, of an entity of Lihaqi in any geographical location is directly proportional, directly linked to the number of people it has mm. in this area. That is why people associate Lihaqi with the Shuf and with, because it started there. But yes, we, we are very strongly supportive of Shamaluna in the north. We are heavily present in Balbak. There's a, a coalition that's being put together at the moment. Uh, and they, I think they, they launched last week. There's a lot of work being done in Beirut. We're doing work that is twofold, basically, with Beirut Tukawim, with uh, with uh, Mada and other smaller groups and individuals. It's an individual-based campaign, but at the same time, Lihaqi will be the bridge between this campaign and other groups to do something in Beirut too. Uh, yeah, and so we are, we are present in several. We are in Halay. You know, we're still not deliberating in names because everything is still not very confirmed, not very 100%, but we're still in talks about the list in, uh, in Babda, also with our uh, strategic partners. So are there any specific people that you've identified that you can tell us about? I cannot tell you names so far because also, unlike... So you asked me before, how do we field candidates and how do we have we thought of names? And I, I've become an expert at like fishing for opportunities to, <laughs> to sell our practices. But what we do is we actually, unlike uh, many other groups where the entire propaganda machine and the entire campaign is centered around this one person in X district, what we're doing is we're starting off from a political paper and from a political stance and w- with a very grassrooty kind of mindset in a, in structures that that uh, leverage and that privilege participatory democracy where we put a political stance and we talk about priorities and then we also talk about criteria. 
based on which we will vet candidates. Very similar to the model that is being presented by Shamalona, where they have primaries and they pick their people, you know, directly from the grassroots bottom up kind of approach. And here, I think it's also worth noting that this is, was also practiced in the Nakaba Tantafid uh, battle for the order of uh, engineers and architects, where also there were primaries and there were there were criteria and people were fielded based on the uh, based on the criteria and not you know we have this candidate and everybody needs to rally around them. It's the other way around, which is why things take a bit more time to mature and for us to be able to talk about them. I think it's important to, again, kind of stress on what you were saying in terms of your electoral alliances or alliances in general are based on each area and based on the actors or entities in that area and whether they kind of fall into your values and your political paper and points. To what level would you say Lihaki kind of compromises those things? So responding to the question on whether we compromise or not, um, I think the <laughs> any any political party in you know any political party with a very uh, heke idealist kind of point of view uh, paradigm would say of course we would never compromise on anything but really uh, and I think we as the hockey were accused of being too like too idealists and too like uh, you know unable to to negotiate anything in ter- when it comes to you know our values and our principles but actually yeah we don't <laughs> We don't compromise because there are, there are, uh, uh, like vital notions that we really we're really strongly attached to, um, such as, for instance, any political party that does not be it in the opposition or in the in power today, if they're not willing to have a conversation about the redistribution of losses, about the restructuring of debt, about the the entire foundational notions that hold the Lebanese economy today, the fact that it's a that it's a raging free market, the fact that people it honors and it privileges monopolies, the fact that the workers' movement and the the syndicates and the the, the people in their workplaces cannot organize for the least of their basic rights, to us is fundamental. The fact that people cannot have, anybody who can't have a conversation about this and who is not willing to sit at the table and say, we need to revise everything that is, you know, on which our economy is based, then, yeah, this is something we don't compromise on. We we cannot have a conversation with these people if we are not over this. Anybody who is not willing to explicitly and honestly talk about secularism or a secular state is worrying to us. The fact that a lot of people would rather talk about the civil state is alarming to me personally. Definitely, I know that a lot of um, a lot of opposition groups um, talk about the you know the civil state and demand a civil state and demand for you know the the they talk about the civil state as something that we aspire for. But to me, anybody who cannot mention explicitly talk about secularism is alarming anybody who talks who still uses this you know rhetoric of sectarian rights and the rights of the population of the jabal or the rights of the bierte or the rights of in isolation of you know everybody else in isolation of the entire oppressive structure is also alarming the fact that there's also one thing that we don't we don't compromise on the fact that we're not we're against working with funding platforms the fact that there are people who would come in with humongous amounts of money to to sort of convene opposition groups that need to be convened anyway without the will or the intervention of any funding donor agency or funding platform 
is also something we don't abide by, we don't work with. I mean, we need to be doing this the other way around. We need to have a platform and the platform comes and says, this is how much money we need and this is how we're fundraising. Not people, uh, businessmen, former bankers uh, would come in with money and say like, oh, come, let's work together. Work together on what? How do I know we don't have any conditions that are going to come out of the bushes at some point? Um, so, yeah. Um, so in regards to funding, uh, does not. Uh, yeah. No. What what were those? Were there conversations? Like what happened? There were conversations at the very beginning, like a few months back, with Nahwal Watan. As far as I know, there weren't any major differences between the two until there was an explicit split a few months back. We had a few conversations with Nahwal Watan because they invited everybody to a table of discussion. Already, like, this is alarming enough. Um, we had a lot of questions about, you know, who the funders are, you know, what are the conditions. We tried to impose particular notions and particular principles, which they accepted at the beginning. But then because there was no transparency when it came to, like, who, really, who are you? One of the major, one of the things that helped us make a decision to not, to disengage with them for good was the fact that we, we received no answers to this. Like, we don't. We didn't know who the individuals were for a very long time. And anyway, this is also, it goes against the way we do things. It's not only because we did not know who the funders were. It's also because we have a, a platform and we convene on our own and we present something and then we look for funding and then we decide whether we take particular funding or not. The fact that things were starting from funding was alarming enough. Uh, for us to like pause and you know ask uh, ask questions internally and then decide to like not not engage because that would also mean we would be carrying you know their conditions and their ways of doing things. So in terms of funding them, how does Lihaki receive its funding? So at the moment uh, we are putting together our our platform that our candidates will be carrying all across the country across the districts um and we our funding strategy is basically mostly relying on fundraising among our uh, constituencies and within our groups uh, within our grassroots in Lihaki um uh, be it Lihaki uh, Europe or Lihaki uh, in Lebanon. So it's basically mostly reliant on uh, fund- fundraising from within our circles. We talked about how elections aren't necessarily the end yeah. all be all, and it's kind of just one of those steps. And you mentioned changing political discourse and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. But so what's, let's say, post elections? Are yeah. you? What are the conversations revolving around a post election? We uh, have this principle. Political party? We have this principle in Lihaki. We always like we talk about when we talk about elections, you know, just for us to to stress on the fact that it's a it's a milestone, like it's a it's an occasion, it's a station, after which the real actual work is going to start. We often look at elections as occasions for us to increase or populate our grassroots, our basis to to meet other like-minded people in the city or in the district where we're at. And to actually start building alternatives to the current economic networks that are not working, that are failing people, basically, to enhance solidarity practices among among each other, so we can self-sustain away from the you know the the, the, the systems and the and the entities and the institutions that are being that are being imposed on us by the system and that are keeping us reliant on them for for basic, basic needs. Um, the five-year plan is also pushing for, uh, as I said, as I keep saying always, the, the, the creation of a new social contract that's built on a secular, decentralized state that has at its core the social justice demands of the people, uh, the dismantling of the, the intersecting power systems that are oppressing everybody, uh, um, migrants, women, uh, LGBTIQ, everybody, basically. Um, that's the five-year plan. It's what we've been doing and what we will keep on doing, regardless of whether or not elections are, are held or, or you know, cancelled last minute or, you know, held with breaches or whatever, you know. Um, yeah. So what would you say to, I don't know, people listening to this, whether they're in Lebanon or living outside of Lebanon, 
um, I mean, everybody should obviously be voting, even though we're saying that elections is um, just a milestone and not the battleground, let's say. But what would you say to people? Like, what should they be doing to get to that new Lebanon or new social contract? Or... I think the first thing that they should do is they should start reading up on the platforms of anybody who is running for elections today. Because I think one of the things that we were not socialized to do in our political culture is to actually look at what's being presented to us in terms of content and in terms of, of agenda and in terms of ideals. We often look at people and you know our entire political practice is centered around these individuals, be it the people who are today and who are in power today or the people who you know, who are fielded or framed or dubbed as opposition icons. So the first thing that people need to do today is to look up their group of choice, <laughs> their opposition group of choice, or basically anybody, everybody that has a, an agenda so far, to read up on that. If these people are not running, to actually question them and ask them and be critical of them. Like, where are you? Like, why aren't you running? Is there any fundamental reason why you're away where would you be running? With whom? Who would you be fielding? Like to ask a lot of questions. Because also we weren't socialized to ask. We were socialized to accept and be passive about things because this is how things are. We often hear this and we never question it. So yes, read up and, and ask questions. And then, you know, when the, the time comes for elections, to choose whomever they see, you know, most aligned with their values. If somebody is more leaning towards the left they need to look at who is also most leaning to the left. If there are people who, you know, dislike Hezbollah or believe Hezbollah is the worst enemy ever possible, but find that the economic model was working, then find people who are aligned with this kind of, you know, thinking. Ideally, and traditionally, people would ask other people to vote for them. But for me, because also this is aligned with how Lihaki thinks and how Lihaki believes. Whatever the, the grassroots and the, the vibe of the people is and the, 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 the agendas that are out there, um, they, people need to pick and choose. People need to read, be critical of, and ask questions to those people they feel they're closer to. That's what I would ask. I mean, the most important thing is to not remain passive. I mean, fight the urge to sleep in on elections day. <laughs> and um, and I, I understand that asking people to be active and asking people to have, you know, to be politically informed maybe comes from a place of privilege. A lot of people would tell us like, because you can afford to do this, you, you know, you have a job, you're privileged. Okay, yes, maybe I acknowledge that. But it also comes from a place of a, a scarcity of choices. Like we are not that privileged actually. We are in some sense, but in another sense, we're like, something needs to be done. And I need to urge people to actually look up the people who are doing something and see where they fit and then mobilize with them and then join their ranks. Yeah. We end with the question, what's a moment, doesn't have to be political, but like that you had recently that kind of gave you this uh, hope in the country? The 17th of October, 2019. I think that was the that was the peak of my political activism and of my political activism as a feminist also because on the front lines that night it, it was the women we literally saved the day it's symbolic and it's it's emblematic of my like it's the culmination of my entire <laughs> you know my entire activism and my entire you know all those years of trying to fit in, in spaces and trying to to make change happen in different instances and in different spaces, you know, just occurred on that night. And it was really inspiring that the few hours later, as we were chanting and moving across the city, the numbers were increasing exponentially. Like we would look back every five minutes, I would look you know, over my shoulder and I would find like people literally flooding into the streets. And I think this was, I would never forget this. Um, and uh, until now, it's been the highlight of our political activism. So. I 
could even say it was the highlight of my life. Yeah. Like that night and the day after. I think all of us in Lebanon, it's like you don't have public spaces and it's hard to like find your place in political entities or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then that night came and everybody just like the space was there. Yeah. You know, yeah. It was just a tari. It just everyone. existed. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully many more of those to come. Inshallah. Hopefully. Thank you so much. Thank you. For your time. Thank You're you. welcome. Thank you. Saudi is an Impact Lebanon initiative. The Saudi podcast is co-hosted by Samir Balouz, Tamara Rasamni, and myself, Tariq Khalil. It's produced by Tamara Rasamni, and our sting is done by Rupin Bezdekian. We'll be releasing episodes every Wednesday, so make sure to subscribe now so you don't miss an episode. Thank you.